Dennis Kinlaw had a passionate interest in prayer, seeking to understand the way God worked through human intercession. His studies on prayer helped many learn to pray as God prays by carrying others in one's heart. We hope this message on prayer will call you into a deeper life of intercession. I want you to pray with me that I'll be able to be succinct in what I'm saying because uh, I'm going to deal with some concepts that are pretty broad. I'd, I'd like to ask the Lord to help me stick through so that I've dealt with the basic thrust of the argument here or of the case that for here, for what we're talking about. So will you pray with me that uh, I won't be wordy and that I'll be succinct. Uh, God will help me to be succinct. And he will confirm in your heart what there is in it that's true and what there isn't that he'll uh, help you just never even to hear. Let's pray that way. Now, Father, we ask you today to come and speak to us. You promised to give us the spirit to teach us, and you've given us your word as the guide. So open up some of the deeper dimensions of the word of God to us today, of your ways, of your patterns, so that we may be more effective servants of yours and will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Paul was writing to Timothy. So what you have is sort of a father-son, pastor relationship between an older man and a younger man. And he's uh, bearing his heart to him, and he says in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time, and for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, that's important enough that I want us to read it again. (laughs) So uh, keep looking at it. And remember as much as you can as a background for what we're going to be saying. I urge then, you notice the urgency in him. I urge then, first of all, notice how primary this is. First of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now notice it's God who wants all men to be saved, but it's the Man, Christ Jesus, not reflect, he's, he's deity, but it's the man part, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. It is not difficult to make a case 
for the importance of prayer in the Christian life. It doesn't matter whether you turn to the Bible or whether you turn to speakers at a Hart Crafer Revival Conference, because you will notice that every speaker speaks about the cruciality of prayer. The Bible, of course, is very clear in its witness to its importance, to its, de its decisive importance. You'll notice the admonitions like this that you have here in 1 Timothy, or again and again like when Paul at the end of a letter like to the Thessalonians, maybe the first one he ever wrote, he concludes by saying that we should rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us. Now, as you look at the Scripture, you find that the Scripture gives us an awful lot of illustrations of prayer and the importance of it. One of the passages that is very precious to me is the, the prayer of Hannah, a woman who lived in a day when a woman's value was usually meaningless if she could not have children, and Hannah could have none. And she had a rival, a second wife for her husband, who had no problem begetting children. And that second wife had no problem ridiculing Hannah. You can imagine the hurt and the pain, and you can understand the weeping as she, as she prays before God, asking him for a son. And it's interesting that out of a woman whose life you and I would never have known about apart from that story, and who certainly would not be listed among the people who have greatly influenced human history, if it had not been for that prayer, you would have never had the bridge person between 12 sort of amorphous tribes disorganized and the kingdom of Saul and, of, and then of David. One of the most important bridge persons in human history came out of a humble woman's cry for a child, and God heard her cry. And God recognized that and left us with the, with the actual prayer. There it is. Now, that's just simply typical of the Scripture's interest in prayer. Then you get uh, the other examples. Of course, the primary one is Jesus. Read Luke, and you find reference after reference. You come to John, and you get the actual prayers. But the interesting thing is that in John, they don't appear to be prayers. They're just conversations with his father. But that's the way he lived, and his whole life came out of those conversations with his father. Now, I notice that in John 17, at the beginning of John 17, which is the most important prayer in Scripture that's given to us, I was going through John noting that there is no prayer language in John. It's just ordinary language. When I came to John 17, I read my translation, and the translation said, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and prayed to the Father. But I looked at the Greek text, and it says, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said to the Father. It's not even a religious terminology. It's so much a part of his life. The same language is used that you'd use with your wife or your son or your husband or your friend. Now, amazing thing is that we're told in the Scriptures that God himself prays. I've never quite gotten over that because that shatters all of the concepts of prayer. Why does God need to pray? I understand why I need to pray. But uh, why does God need to pray? But he does. The Spirit and the Son and the Spirit prays with groanings that are unutterable. Groanings that are unutterable. So it's not a problem to make a scriptural case for the importance and the necessity of prayer. What came to me as I was thinking about this was, you know, the thought of a prayerless life for Jesus would be absolutely unthinkable. He could not conceive of a person whose life was prayerless. Now, I think we tend to make a couple of mistakes about prayer. Preachers, first of all, you know, we tend to 
pray to get God's blessings upon what we think is his will. And oftentimes it's what is our will instead of his. And so we get, I did it too many times. I prepared my message and then said, Lord, I'd appreciate your blessing it. And so the end result is that our prayers come out of our ministry. But biblically, ministry comes out of prayer. You don't know how to minister. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to say until you've been with God and found out. Jesus, as Dr. Richards says about Jesus, very clearly said that uh, he did not speak his own word. He spoke the word which the Father had given to him. It's interesting when the word speaks the word of somebody else, but the word speaks the word, <clears throat> the word of the Father. And so our ministry as our life should come out of our prayer life. Now, we make a mistake in bifurcating our life between, I'm not sure what the best language is, but say the secular or the regular, the routine, and the religious. Prayer is something that we tack on here. You will not find that true in Jesus' life. You will not find it true in Abraham's life. You will not find it true in Moses' life. It was such a vital part of their life that it really was the essence, the heart, the core of their personal existence. So we split these, and so we get the activists and the contemplatives. And we've done it ecclesiastically in the church where we've had convents and monasteries and people that devote their lives to prayers. And so we separate those who are active from those who are contemplatives. You're going to have a hard time making a case out of that scripturally. I'm aware that you get the Simeon in the temple and the Anna, but they were as old as I am. And uh, that's not the pattern for a Moses delivering a nation and uh, uh, an Abraham laying the or a Paul who's laying the foundations for a transformation of the of the world of which he was a part, of Mesopotamian Hellenic culture, total transformation. There was no division here. I, had a, I have had a very good friend across my number of years, a Britisher. He was in this country, or he was in Canada, and he was the director for the South Africa General Mission, back in the days when they called it that, Andrew Murray's mission, and I had him preaching for me. And he had a he- very heavy burden on him of responsibilities, travel and work. And one day he turned to me and he said, Kinlaw, he said, uh, I'm glad God divides the work up. He said, I'd never make it if it weren't for those groups of little ladies that pray for me. Now, I know that uh, Peter uh, prayed, and he didn't mean what I'm talking about. But do you know how many places there are where the only thing you can find is a ladies' prayer meeting? When I became a Christian, I looked for somebody around who understood what had happened to me. I couldn't find a men's prayer meeting, so I found myself sitting down as a 15-year-old next to an 80-year-old lady in a little old lady's prayer meeting. My daughter said, uh, they asked her to speak to a group, and they said, what do you want to speak on? She said, I want to speak on Deborah in jail, and I want to speak, my title is, What to Do When the Men Won't Lead. And the lady said, well, that'll be interesting. (laughs) But uh, we bifurcate these things now, and unfortunately... Now, Moses and Paul would not understand that kind of mindset at all because for them, they could not think of existing and doing their work without continual and deep and profound prayer. Their life had to come out of an intimate relationship with God. And let me say, they were relatively busy men. In fact, I don't know where you'd find in human history two busier people than Moses and Paul, two more active people than Moses and Paul. Let me say something. I don't think we appreciate these men properly. Are you aware that the two greatest intellectual revolutions in human history came out of Moses and Paul? At least they were the central ones. The first is that breakout of mythological thinking 
into monotheistic thinking that there's one God who is responsible for all of creation. So you can talk about a universe and you can talk about the unity of the creation. Now, you can make a case with no problem that medical science came out of that discovery. It'd take a little while to go through it, but it can be done. Einstein was a kid in short pants compared to Moses, intellectually, in his intellectual impact. Now, the same thing is true about Paul. Moses let us know that God is one, and Paul led the way to let us know that in that oneness there is a diversity. There's a father and a son and a spirit. And uh, in that he laid the groundwork for the transformation of Greek culture. So that Plato was not the final word or Socrates, but so that the scriptures were the final word in determining Western culture. And Europe today... The memorials are there, the cathedrals and all the rest and the history with Augustine and Aquinas and Calvin and Luther. You keep on going, these great minds. But it all, Paul laid that groundwork. And what was he doing? Read the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I wish I had time to stop and read it to you. But you read what he went through, how much he suffered, how many times he was beaten, how he was rejected. And I always have been, I always find myself smiling a little when he gets to the end of that long list of things that have happened to him. He tells about how when he left Damascus, they put him in a basket and lowered him over the wall. And I have a little bit of a feeling that he was saying it was a little hard on my dignity. <laughs> but he was used to stuff being hard on his dignity. But there it is, this incredibly active man. And, uh, Prayer at the heart. You'll never get too active that you have, a, you have an alibi for putting prayer marginal in your life. Now, look at what they did. Moses built a nation, a people, laid the legal foundations for a society. He developed the religious institutions for that same society and laid the basis for Hebrew culture. Paul. Trans, laid the basis for the transformation of the West, philosophically, politically, theologically, helping us understand who Jesus was and who the God of salvation actually is. Now, you get a different understanding of what moves history if you think about this. Because, you know, we tend to think about the geniuses and the great leaders and all the rest. But I'm ready this morning to make a case that what ultimately determines history is conversations with God. And you know, God has a problem getting them. Isn't it interesting how hard it is for him to get on your calendar and mine? Like that guy Moses. He had to burn a bush to get his attention. So he could simply talk to him. But when God talked to Moses and Moses had to reply back, all of human history shifted. So I want to say that the most important thing in human history are conversations with God. Now, there, there are noble people in the world that you and I'd be flattered to have, be invited to have a conversation with. How under the sun can we neglect conversations with God? There's nobody in Shulub with whom a conversation is as important as a conversation with God. I love the book of Genesis from this school because all it is, the prime thing in the book of Genesis is God talking to Abraham and Abraham talking back and then talking to his son. And you know what the key word is in Genesis? It's the Hebrew word, vayomer, and he said. And the same word is used when Moses talks to God as when God talks to Moses. It's not religious language. The religious language doesn't come until, uh, in, in Abraham's story, until you get that story of uh, Abimelech 
when Abraham lied about his wife or misrepresented things. And Abimelech found his household cursed. And God says to him, you be careful about what you do to that man Abraham because he's a prophet. He may not have acted like a very good one when he dealt with you this way. But he will pray for you. And when he prays for you, the curse on your household will be removed. And so we begin to get, and it's interesting that the word which is used there, the Greek word hitpaleo, is the standard word, the common word for the rest of the Old Testament for prayer. Now, I want to tell you what it means. Pin this down. I missed it for a long time. The root palal means to interpose. And when you put the hit in front of it, it becomes a reflexive. So what God is saying to Abimelech is, Abraham will interpose himself between you and me. And when he gets through praying, the curse I put on your family will be removed. I suspect we now are getting to the very essence of what the Bible means about prayer. Now, there are other angles to prayer. There are praise, there are requests, they're all legitimate. But you see, God doesn't need to ask for anything but he prays. And what is the prayer? It's intercession. And you and I are most like God in intercession, interposing ourselves. And that's the kind of person that God looks for in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 50, in Isaiah 59, in Isaiah 63, in Jeremiah 5, and in uh, uh, Ezekiel 22. He looks for a person who will interpose himself between God who wants to save all men and a world, a society. No, Jerusalem, the church that's lost. So you see, that's a revival prayer and fits with what you've been hearing, that the key to the, the, key to the hope of the world lies in the church. And if the church is not revived, the world has no hope. So God looks for those who will interpose themselves. Now, the uh, background behind that story with Abimelech in chapter 20 of Genesis, we get an interesting introduction to this, this aspect of the relationship between man and God. And it comes particularly in Genesis 18. I wish we had time to take these chapters and Go through them carefully, but we don't have that time, so let me throw them at you. But Genesis 18 now is a pivotal chapter for me because it fits with 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 8 very well. You will remember that this is 24 years after God has told Abraham he's going to give him a son, and no son has come. We don't work on God. God has his own time schedule. And now Abraham's sitting, looking for a little cool in the heat of the day next to his tent, and he sees three persons coming. And in good Eastern fashion, and he may have known more, he jumps up, runs out, and says, please come in, let us prepare some food for you and and, uh, rest. And so the three persons come in, and they sit down to eat. And one of them says to Abraham, Next year, this time, your son will be born. And so Abraham knows it's God. Now, who is this son that's going to be born? His name is Isaac. Now, what does Isaac mean? It means he laughs. Now, you remember, Sarah laughed in unbelief. Earlier, Abraham had laughed in unbelief. And for years, I thought that God said, name your child your sin, so that every time you call him, you'll know you shouldn't have laughed in unbelief. You should be a believer. But I did a doctoral dissertation on personal names in the ancient Near East, and I got a revelation. All of them are religious. The normal one is a sentence, and the actor in the sentence is a divine being. Michael, 
me who ka like el God, Michael, who is like unto God. Jonathan, Yahweh has given, yo natan. Uh, if that's true, then what is Isaac who left? Who is this God? He's a God who wants not willing that any should perish, Paul said to Timothy. Wants all persons to be saved. And he's come down to tell Abraham, next year the messianic line will be in place. And it is God rejoicing in the prospect of the redemption of his world. He laughs. Now, laughs for joy. Then they finish the meal and get up and start. Uh, God gets ready to go on his way. And Abraham, good courtesy fashion, hospitality-like, walks with him to the edge of the camp. Now, you know it's when you're not in a business relationship that people relax with each other. I may not be handling this exactly the way it ought to be handled, but be patient with me for a moment. As they walk along, God talks to himself. And you know, it's interesting when people talk to themselves. If you can hear them talk to themselves, you can learn some interesting things about them. And God says to himself, Shall I hide from Abraham where I'm going and what I've got to do or may have to do? Then he says, no, I can't hide from Abraham where I'm going and what I'm about to do or may have to do because he knows me and loves me. Remember, Abraham in the Old Testament is called the friend of God, but the Hebrew word for it is lover. Lover. Ohave, lover. Now, when they translate Ohave in the New Testament in James and call Abraham a friend, they use phileos, which means friend. But in the Hebrew, in Isaiah and in Second Chronicles, Abraham is called the Ohave, the lover of God. Now, what's the fulfillment of the commandment? It's to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he says he's going to teach his children about me. He's going to teach them my ways. And this messianic line of truth about me is going to be maintained. Of course, I'll tell him what my problem is. He says, we've just put in line the way to save the world. But I got some cities down here that are so viciously vile, I may have to wipe them out. And what's the first response? One who stands and says, Now, Lord, shouldn't the judge of all the earth do right? And the first specific prayer of concern of any extent in the scripture is an intercession for others. Now, the pattern's being laid down, you see. And what is it? God wants all men to be saved, and so there's an Isaac. And in First Timothy, there's the man, Christ Jesus. But then there's the wickedness, and who stands between. That's the beginning. Now, let me say something here that I think came as a bit of a shock to me. The basic simple assumption that you find here, and that you find later, when Moses is praying for Israel and he says, strike my name out first, or when Miriam has done wrong and God has made a leper out of her and Moses intercedes for her, or the fire is burning and about to wipe Israel out and Moses intercedes, or when Samuel says to Israel, I cannot sin against you by ceasing to pray for you, to interpose myself for God's mercy and for God's grace. There's an interesting assumption, and that is that something can happen in my heart 
that can make a difference in somebody else's circumstances and possibilities. That something can happen inside me that can make a difference in another person's privileges and chances. Because you see, that's at the heart of what intercession is about. That's that person who interposes himself. Now, there's no salvation in that person who interposes himself. But that person who interposes himself makes the saving power of God possible opportunity for somebody. Now, that means that the key, I wish I knew how to say this well, the key to every person's well-being and salvation rests outside of himself in somebody else. Now, that runs counter to all of our Western individualism and American individualism. But if I understand Scripture, the salvation, the well-being of any person rests in somebody other than himself first. And there the conditions have to be met. Now, how do we know it? There is no salvation apart from Christ. There is no salvation apart from the God-man, Christ Jesus who interposed himself between God and us. And then that Christ who says to us, the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. And if they receive you, they get me. And if they get me, they get my Father. And if they reject you, they miss me. And if they miss me, they miss my Father. I was 60 years of age before I saw that in Matthew where he sends out the 12, and in Luke, where he sends out the 72. But there it is. He says, if they reject you, they miss me, and when they miss me, they miss my Father. And if they accept you, they get me, and when they get me, we go together. You and I, and the Father, and the world. That's the world's chance. Okay. Now, is that really true? At Asbury, like every college, you have these uh, alumni meetings, you know, every year. You want all the alumni to come back and refresh their friendships and so forth. <laughs> so we invite the alumni back. All right, last year in, 80, in, 90, in, in 2005, uh, the alumni were back. And this was the 35th anniversary of the 70 revival. And so in those sessions, the class we'll all get together, like all of the ones who were there, graduated in 70, they met together. Their president led the discussion, and usually is a sharing time. And so he said, I must be the one to share first. Uh, Mark was a missionary kid from Africa. Graduated from Asbury, became a veterinarian, went back to Africa for a while, came back to the States, and... Uh, is uh, runs a wild game refuge in Florida and is also, as a veterinarian, uh, his specialty is uh, dealing with foals, uh, mares that are foaling calves. This spring he was delivering a, a foal, and as he delivered the foal, the mare kicked him and caught him right under the chin here with her hoof and sent him sprawling. And he got up sort of shaken but eager to get back and save that foal. And uh, so he sort of staggered back and was woozy for a while. And his wife said, you need to go see a doctor. And he said, no, no, no. Well, a couple of days later, 8 o'clock in the morning, maybe three days later, he was dressing to go to work. And he said, suddenly I knew I was dying. He said, I knew. So he said, I called for my wife, and he said, our home is so soundproofed, she didn't hear me. But at that moment, an inner voice said, check on Mark. She went to the bathroom and found him called 9-11, and they came and saved him. He thought he was okay. But uh, what had happened was, the carotid artery had been split. 
an inch and a half split. And the blood congealed and closed it. Now the doctors had looked at that and thought about trying to remove it, but it was too ticklish. And they left it and gave him Coumadin to dissolve it. And the Coumadin dissolved the blood clot, and he was dying. A week or two after that, he was in his Wednesday night prayer meeting. And he knew he had to share. And so he shared how God had saved him. A friend of his came up to him and said, Mark, <laughs> what time was that? Mark said, it was 8 o'clock in the morning, right on the dot. She said, Mark, I just sat down at my computer to begin my day's work. And a burden came. It was so heavy, I could not resist it. I spread eagled on the floor alone and prayed for you. Now, I can tell you other stories like that. Now, I've heard a lot of stories in my life in Christian circles that I was very skeptical about. So, but there are stories I know. Friends, same kind of thing. Where the salvation of one person hangs on the response of another. I don't know how to suggest a way to emphasize the importance of prayer more than that. Okay, now, I notice that if that's true, now hear me carefully here, all of God's work is mediatorial. He works through mediators. Did you notice in First Timothy? There is one God and one man the mediator, Christ Jesus. And he was sent to do that mediatorial work. And on Easter Sunday evening, Jesus looked at his disciples and friends and says, as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. Is not our task the same, mediatorial? Now you see, that fits that hit paleo interpose oneself, to stand between. You know, that changes your attitude about some things. When I was a young pastor and concerned about my church and my community, there were certain people that I'd know and I'd think, if that rascal would just straighten up and fly right, the whole world would be better off. Do you know that's pagan thinking? He's not going to straighten up and fly right on his own. If I want you to straighten up and fly right, the first thing I need to do is look at me. Because the way to any person is through somebody else. Okay. Now, God wishes all to be saved. Why doesn't he just save them? <laughs> Why doesn't he just straighten this whole mess out? Well, he put limitations. Now, my language may not be good, so let the theologians straighten all my language out. But I just got to deal with the biblical text and, and take it at my, at my ability to comprehend it. And that is, when God made us, he made us persons. Now, has anybody ever suggested to you that the word self and person, these two words are not fully synonymous? Now, I know the psychologists make them as synonymous. And the sociologists and the anthropology. But the word self and the word person have two different histories. Now, here is the place where we as Christians are radically different from those in the social sciences in our world, social sciences that are so influential and dominant in our cultural circles. You see, when you talk about the self, you turn this way. But when you talk about a person, do you know where the word person came from? We wouldn't have the word person, personality, personhood, or personable 
we would not have that family of words if it had not been for the problem the church had in the third and fourth centuries answering the question, who is Jesus? And the Latin word persona was picked out to say he's one of the three persons in the Godhead. And you know what they also said? Now, listen. The Father is not all there is of God. He's a person. But all there is of God is in the Father because God the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. The Son is not all there is of God. So God is three persons. But all there is of God is in the Son. God is one. The Spirit is not all there is of God, but all there is of God is in the Spirit. The Spirit is not all. He's a person. To be a person is to be incomplete. And your completeness is found in somebody else. Do you know the only way you can be a son is to have a father? Do you know the only way you can be a father is to have a child? Now, you have to carry that same logic to the spirit because he is the spirit of the father and the son. Now, you see, he made us persons. And no person ever originates his own life. Every person in this crowd started in somebody else's tummy. I see one person, and I know there are two more somewhere. <laughs> and you find the two more, and I'll say there are four more somewhere. You find the four, eight more somewhere. And there's no way you can explain this one without the two and the four and the eight, and you can keep on going. You know who I am? Dennis Kenlaw. You know where I got that name? I didn't choose it. I'm a Kenlaw because my father was a Kenlaw, my mother. My name's Dennis. I named after a great-grandfather. Do you know a person's self-identity is always drawn from somebody else? I like that because I'm a child of God. <laughs> you know where I can get my identity? I can get my identity from my father. And I'm his child, child of God. Now, but you see, personal relationships are not like relationships between things. Relationships between things you can handle on cause and effect basis. You know, punch the button and the light goes on. You can't do that with your wife. Now, she may try it with you, but if you're smart, you won't try it with her. Personal relationships work differently. And so we've got to take that into account when we deal with this. And you see, the key to that is what happens in one person determines another person. Whether it's in a mother's tummy or in a Christian's heart. Because you see, I think I've been twice born in one sense. Twice born. Let me use that language. Twice born. My mother bore me in her body. And then she bore me in her soul and wept over my salvation. Now, that's what a pastor is. He's supposed to be a bearer. Now, it's interesting. There's so many angles to this. Beautiful rabbit's trail. I'd like to go down. But we don't have time. Now, you see, if this is true, this is the importance of revival. Because if the way to my neighbor is through me, and if I'm clogged up, what happens? If I'm not clean, what about my neighbor? Or a pastor and his people? If the pastor's not clean, what about his people? What he needs, you see, we're flow-throughs. We're not the answer to anybody's problem. 
We're the channel through which that answer can come because that answer is in Jesus Christ and his spirit and the Father so that God can come and dwell within me. But if he can't get through the person who stands between him and me, then I'm lost. You wonder what the judgment day is going to be like when we find out whose keys we had inside us and we never turned them. And how do you turn them? Now there's where we get to the tough spot. Because the only way you can turn it, if Jesus is the true key and all the rest of us are images of him, he did it by laying down his life for us. Which means what? He came to the place where he cared more about us than he did himself. Now, I'm not a good enough speaker, a good enough preacher to deal with this. But you ought to get down before God and say, God, you talk to me about this. The only way intercessory prayer will really work is when you've come to the place where somebody else is more important in his well-being than you. And you are ready to pour yourself out like a drink offering, as Paul says. Are you are ready to lay your life down the way Jesus did for somebody else. And I want to tell you what I believe. I believe it with all my heart. That when you come to the place where you let God put in you that kind of concern for somebody else, that other person's circumstances just automatically begin shifting. And possibilities go there that were not there before that person became your burden. Now, you see, that's the reason for that text. Love God with all your heart. And your neighbor is yourself. And how are you supposed to love yourself? Secondarily to God and your neighbor. You love him. You want God's will for him. You want God's will for yourself more than anything else. You want God's will for your neighbor more than anything else. It's God's will you're after. That means God is the center. And what he's after that's the reason that Jesus can say, if you pray in my name, you'll be heard. That's an incredible condition, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's pretty hard to ask in the name of Jesus Christ for your personal desires if they're not in the will of God. Now, is this figure that I'm using a legitimate and a biblical one? There are two passages of Scripture that have now come together for me. One of them is Paul dealing with the Galatians in chapter 4 and verse 19, when these who are his children have turned away from Christ. And they want to mix works and grace. And when you mix that, you've nullified grace. And so you will remember that Paul says, My little children, for whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I think you're about as close to the heart of Paul in that verse as you'll ever get. It's one thing when he goes as an evangelist to tell the gospel the first time. It's another thing when he sees his own children turning away from the faith that he brought them to. And so he says, my little children, for whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now, you know, we talked in, for a few moments this morning in the early prayer meeting about the fact that Paul never read a New Testament. See, he was one of the writers. 
So the only Bible he had was the Old Testament. Where did he get his paradigms from and his patterns for thought? He got them out of the Old Testament. Now, my question is, is this, does this reflect an Old Testament pattern? One day after I'd thought about this a good while, I'm slow and it takes me a long time to see things. But I read Numbers 11. Israel has received the law at Sinai. They've had the disastrous experience of the golden calf. Moses has interceded for them. And now they've received instructions about the tabernacle and about worship. And they're ready to head for Canaan. And just as they get ready, as they get started, there are some people who came along with them who are not Hebrews. My one translation says the riffraff. I don't know, but anyway, non-Hebrews, who they uh, said maybe we should have stayed in Egypt, and they began to complain. And the Hebrews, Moses' people, picked it up. And Moses looked, and standing in the doorway of every tent was the man in the family, weeping as they said, we're fed up on manna. And Moses said, I've put up with this long enough. So he talks back to God. And do you know what he says? God, I didn't conceive these people. I did not birth them. And that's the language. Hara for conceive. Yalad for birth. Do I have to bear them the way a nurse bears a baby? And it's interesting, a word that occurs only three times in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a male term for a nurse. Omain. Do I have to be an Omain for them. Now, seven times in that passage of just a brief paragraph, you get the verb nasa or the noun masa. And nasa is the verb to bear, waiter carrying his tray, or a mother carrying a fetus, or Jesus on the cross bearing your sin. It's the strong word in the Old Testament for forgive. It's an incredible word. But he says, do I have to bear these people? And the noun, the verb and the noun occur seven times in that passage. I wonder if Paul did not have that incident and that passage in mind when he wrote Galatians 4.19. My little children, for whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now, the interesting thing is that that figure runs through the scripture more than most of us have ever noted. And you have to remember that the whole purpose of human history is to give God a family. Read Ephesians 1. What's the purpose of predestination? To give God a family. What's the purpose of the creation? Now, let me use crass language, but somewhere before time began, <laughs> in the bosom of eternity, uh, one member of the Trinity looked at each other and said, this fellowship we've got together is pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> Agape love. Joy in each other joy in each other, their fulfillment in each other. And they said, it'd be nice to let some other people enjoy this, wouldn't it? And God created the universe to add people to that fellowship. Because you know where you're going to sit finally? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him and sup with him. But to him that overcometh will I grant to, what? Sit with me in my throne. And Jesus that last night said to his father, where I am, I want them to be. 
He likes this. He wants us as children. In a relationship to the Father like the Son. Now that's what it's all about. But how do you get children? Physically they have to be born in somebody's tummy. And spiritually they've got to be born in somebody's heart. Now, the interesting thing is, and I've got to quit. But you know, you can't impregnate yourself. A woman can't produce children. She has to be impregnated. And you can't produce them either if you're not impregnated. It's very interesting that it was the Holy Spirit was responsible for the conception in the womb of Mary of the redemption of the world. And the next paragraph in this passage in Numbers 11 is God says to Moses, you can't make it? You can't bear all these people? Pick me out 70 guys out there and bring them to the tabernacle and I'll take the spirit that I put on you that enabled you to bring them this far and I'll put it on them. Because it's not you that enables you to bear them in the first place. It's the spirit that rests on you. Did you know that's only the second time that there is a reference to the spirit on a person in the Bible? And what I love is the first one is on Bezalel to build a habitation for God in space. And the second one, is on a man about building a habitation for God in hearts. And it's the work of the Spirit. So it's not your burden that you need to bear. If it's your burden, the end result will be like sandcastles when the waves hit them. Gone. But if you let him put his burden which he wants you to bear, it has possibilities of birth and new life. Now I want to ask, basically, if you're pregnant, if you belong to the Spirit of God, of Christ you are, Christ carried a world in his heart. God expects you to carry a part of that world. Parent, a family, a pastor, a people, a neighbor, his neighbors, a teacher, his student, keep on going. I want to know about your burden. You know, there are an awful lot of abortions and miscarriages spiritually in the world. Last time Elsie was pregnant, we had twins. And we didn't know we were going to have twins. I'll never forget that last month. Her tummy was mammoth. The day they were born, I walked down the hallway and the, the doctor looked at me and said, I hope you have plenty of bedroom space in your house. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you have two little girls in there. And I said, you're lying. <laughs> We had four children, three children already, and I was in graduate school and didn't own a home and didn't have a job. He said, will you go see? So I walked in and looked down. I'd never seen a fresh baby before. Never had, you know, back in those days, you couldn't get near. So here were these two things, wet with blood in a bassinet, wiggling against each other like two earthworms. And I stared in shock, thought, Looked down at Elsie, and Elsie looked up at me and said, How many? And I said, Two. She said, Are you sure? I said, Yes. Are they all right? I said, Oh, they look all right to me. She said, How many did you say? I held two fingers over her face. And she said, Isn't that just like the Lord? 
You ask for one and you get two. You know, all the labor and discomfort of that last month, oh my, it was forgotten. You get in the middle of a pregnancy and it gets burdensome. Don't walk off. Pastor, don't look for another church. Parents, don't give up on your children. His timing is not your timing. And you don't want an early delivery. You want a delivery when it's right. And it's glorious. You know, I think that is some truth. If the people that are in this auditorium right here, scattered as we are across the country, would say, God, what's the burden you want me to bear? And embrace it. Be sure it's his. And embrace it. And then bear it. I think that would come closer to producing revival in this country than anything I know. Where do you stand in terms of the Spirit and His burden for you? Shall we bow our heads together? Do you need to talk to Him or do you need to listen? Sooner or later, it ought to be both. You ought to let him define for you his call on you. And if you're his child, you're called. And you ought to consent to it and commit yourself. Embrace it. And then bear until the fruit comes. There's something beautiful in all this to me. What a privilege. Because you know where fulfillment is? It'll never be in you. That's the nature of personhood. Fulfillment is in when we have been of significance to someone else.